0: This is Talk Is Sheep, a podcast by the Wild Sheep Society of British Columbia. Come along as we take conversations that matter to you into the high alpine.
1: Mr. Stelter,
0: Mr. Ha, I beat oh, you.
1: I beat uh, I actually think I started, but I was respectful because he overpowered you. Oh, well, that uh, happens, right? <laughs> uh, so this is a, a very cool episode. Um, we reached out to Jessie a long time ago, actually, um, trying to get her on the show. and She's very busy. She travels a lot and um, just a very interesting background. Uh, SEER instructor uh, with the Air Force, just a, a very interesting background. She's currently... Um, well, as you'll learn in the, in the show, she currently runs a SEER school out of uh, Colorado, but uh, she's also start starting OWLs Skills. Um, mm-hmm. Basically, you know, um, it's designed kind of around women and empowering them in the outdoors um, and just a great new program she's starting there. But uh, definitely a very interesting uh, individual, oh, yeah. a very diverse background and very experienced in the backcountry.
0: Yeah, for those that don't know, uh, SEER stands for Survival, Evasion, Resistance, and Escape, and it's a U.S. Air Force course, and she she teaches it. And as as we get into in the cast, uh, it's 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 about a mental game, and uh, that's what we dig deep into and how to survive. And uh, yeah, it's 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 a great conversation. Learned a lot.
1: Yeah, so uh, Jesse Krebs, uh, she currently is running the Seer School in Colorado, starting owls uh, skills as well. Uh, but she has a diverse background in the outdoor industry. She uh, obviously very passionate, and talks lots about uh, wilderness therapy, the work she's done there. So helping you know a whole bunch of people um, through life through um, empowering them in the outdoors and and dealing with uh, their their personal issues that they have. And so yeah, very. Uh, interesting dialogue with jesse and then we also of course jump into some survival stuff Um, a little bit more advanced stuff for some of you out there that are pretty experienced in the backcountry. but i always find these little nuggets or tidbits that i take away that always help me when i'm i'm out in the wilderness and uh, yes obviously she's very experienced and, and had a lot to say on that as well yeah you can never be too prepared
0: as she gets into and little little things in in tidbits that uh that she gives on uh, the mental game and how important that is and cool, cool little thing uh, that Giardia doesn't hit you within hours. So yeah, that's cool. I've, I've had Giardia before. It took a few days, but yeah. Remember when, uh, before I went on my hunt this year, I was asking you the best way to, to (laughs) deal with water up there. And you and Mike, you, you had differing thoughts on it and some of you don't, Purify water, but if you had giardia once, you'll realize <laughs>
1: that ain't fun. Yeah. Well, these UV filters that you use now, like the pens and stuff, that's that's what might go to. And obviously, there's a whole bunch of solutions around that. But uh, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. She talks. About, you know, we're used to remote northern BC. But she's talking about heavy minerals and heavy metals. Um, and, you know, if you're in an industrial setting, obviously that's something that's something, mm-hmm. you know, we got to be aware of. But, you know, being in northern BC, it's so remote. We don't quite have that issue per se. So, um, because obviously that SteriPan is not going to do anything with a, you know, a heavy mineral or a heavy metal or something like that so um yeah interesting dialogue on that uh her pyro stuff and talking about signaling that was pretty cool as well um and always stuff that i always have in the back of my brain it's like well if my in goes down and i get stuck here you know what's my exit strategy here it's always kind of front of mind for me when i'm out mm-hmm. there um actually back of mind it's not necessarily front of mind but something i'm always kind of thinking about um so yeah uh great dialogue um just housekeeping um uh, Steve and I were just talking about it. We, we've we got our membership drive um, out now. It's live, so check us out. Uh, if you're thinking about upgrading or you're thinking about joining the society, it's a great time to do it now. Some really cool prizes. Um, and our Wild Sheep Raffles, there's still some tickets left. Don't uh, forget mm-hmm. to get some of those. Um, we're going to sell those out, hopefully, here. And just uh, five great opportunities to win some. It's over $150,000 in prizes, so yeah. you can't go wrong. Yeah, $318,000 on the ground
0: because of raffles like this and uh, people buying tickets. So yeah, that's where your money goes. It uh, goes right back into the resource that we all love and uh, want, want to see grow.
1: Absolutely. So with that, we're going to go to episode 62 with Jesse Krebs. Enjoy. Across Canada and throughout the world, if you
2: come across a campfire in the woods, on a mountaintop, or next to a river, you'll find warm company and friendly people gathered around. Regardless of your lifestyle or place you call
0: home, we invite you to learn more about what it means to be a hunter in the modern era. If you love
2: the outdoors, care about where your food comes from, and are concerned for the future of wildlife and the environments that they need to survive, pull up a seat. We have a story to tell. Welcome to our campfire.
1: Hey, Jesse, welcome to the show. Great to have you on.
2: Thanks, Kyle. It's great to be here. Thanks for the invite.
1: Yeah, you're a a busy person. We've been trying to touch base here for a while, and I know that, you know, you got a busy life and lots going on. So, you know, we really appreciate you taking the time to sit down with us. And I know even today, trying to carve some time out with stuff. So, thanks again.
2: No worries. You guys are doing some awesome things. I've listened to a couple of podcasts and really like what you got going on. So, I'm happy to be here.
1: All right, on that's that's great. Uh, We appreciate it. So let's let's get to know Jesse. Let's talk about. Um, you know, from your you know, your young years, how you got to where you are. And I want to hear the whole story really, to be honest.
2: (laughs) Ooh, that could take a while. I think everybody's got a, a pretty long story, so it can it can be hard to make that a synopsis, but let's see, I'll give it a go. Um, you know, my mom is a big outdoors person, she's a fisherwoman like nothing you've ever seen. So She would spend a lot of time out on the water, and I would do some fishing with her once in a while. But I was usually off on the shoreline, picking apart scat and catching frogs and climbing trees while she was out fishing. That was kind of my thing. So I enjoyed the wilderness from a very young age. And uh, unfortunately, there was a my grandmother's second husband was a pedophile, and so I ended up um, having sexual infant and childhood sexual abuse. And Uh, you know, this is when things like that happen, often we're taught to trust the people that are doing this to us, right? So it's, um, I didn't feel like I could trust people. And the wilderness was a place that always felt safe to me, I could run away and disappear. And it was a great distraction. And I could learn things. And I felt like the wilderness just opened up its arms. And when grab me in and hold me. And that felt safe and protected when the people around me didn't. I didn't know who I could trust and who I couldn't and, and what was going to happen next. So it started this love affair at a very young age. And as I got a little older, I would start to have nightmares and flashbacks from the experiences. And, um, so I'd sneak out of the house, and I just lived in small town Michigan. So I'd go climb a tree <laughs> in the backyard, and um, occasionally I'd take a pillow <laughs> and I'd fall asleep literally in the tree. And it's amazing; I never fell out of the tree. But that was my safe zone. I felt safe up there and protected and held. And um, the wilderness was just my solitude and my my support system. And I would talk to the wind and the stars and. Hug a tree, <laughs> literally. So that was my foundation, really, and I feel like the core of um, who I was going into my teen years. And my mom is is a huge has been a huge influence on me. She would travel. She left when I was twelve and went to Nepal and um, India and and hiked the Himalayas and um, left me at home. And I got to see the pictures when she came back, you know. But then she took me to Europe when I was. Um, I guess I was a little bit older. I guess I was 12 when I went to Europe and uh, got to see the Louvre and travel and meet all these different people and see these amazing things. And I, so I also got this love of, of adventure and wanting to go and travel and meet people and um, just by having awesome, an awesome mom. Uh, and I also have a background of uh, having a, a very large and diverse family for the most part um my father my blood father um he had two well three three different women he had four different children right so i have several half siblings and my mom had a second child like 21 years after i was born so i have a younger brother who's literally 21 years difference so there's just this wide, I've got a lot of a family and they're all awesome, but all have very different households and lifestyles. And I bounced between them when I was growing up. So again, it was sort of like I felt out of place and who can I trust and who can I not? And now that I'm older and have relationships with all of them, they're all amazing. But at the time it was like, I don't, I don't know. And I was a very shy, very quiet kid. Uh, so when I joined the military and got into SEER, it was because I wanted to get out of small town, Michigan, and I wanted to explore and have some adventure and i think inside i knew i needed the discipline too. <laughs> i was i'm was, I've, I've always been a bit of an air spirit and you know, the dog squirrel, what's that over there, right? want to check out here or there or whatever's going on. and so i needed something to help me channel my um, my intensity and channel my interests and the military really helped me do that. and i found out i love teaching as well. so yeah, it was a good path for me. it's definitely defined my life so far and I'm excited to see where it takes me next.
1: Wow. What, what a story. That's phenomenal. So you talked about, um, seer and, um, so for our listeners, take us down that path and what that means, because I, have done some research. I, Steve knows all about it. He's like, oh my goodness, like whatever you do, just don't mess with Jesse. Do not upset <laughs> her, whatever you do. Um, and, uh, so, so yeah, we'd love to hear about what seer is and, and a little bit more about in the background there.
2: Sure. I had no idea what it was either when I went into the military. Uh, I joined the Air Force at 18, again, just to get out of small town. And my mom made it very clear. uh, One way or another, (laughs) she couldn't force me, but somehow she could force me to go to college. And so the military seemed like a good fit for both of us um, in that it would provide the GI Bill, I'd be able to get college. So when I joined and got into basic training on the 15th day, they were showing specialty fields, and SEER was one of them, survival, evasion, resistance, and escape. And basically teaching soldiers what to do, any of our air crew or in the in air force, obviously air crew, but there's was, there was SEER for all the different branches and occasionally even an air force SEER, we would have uh, people from other branches come through the training. So it's basically teaching them how to get home safely, right? What to do if they're shot down or somehow find themselves behind enemy lines and they're trying to get back home again. And it's funny that you say, you know, be afraid of me, Steve. You don't have to really. <laughs> like we don't teach hand to hand combat, you know, for the most part. We don't, it's more about mental fortitude yeah. and pushing when things feel like they're at their worst, right? And trying to remain calm and, and in hazardous situations. So
0: Yeah, I was in I was in Cadets years ago and we went down to Fairchild. And yeah. this would have been 90, <laughs> 91, 92. And I remember the swimming pool with the little helicopter above it and the rainstorm. And then the, the, they, they sink you, they flip you over and you got to get your way out. And it was the, the, the little bit they put us through. They, the instructors there, like I got some crazy pictures I've sent Kyle little bits of. Uh, we take you out into the field there mm-hmm. and they're building fires and all that. And they say the idea of this training is you're going to get caught. And then we're going to mess with your mind and see how strong you really are. And I remember that just that little snippet. It's just like, holy yeah, I was nuts.
2: Yeah, it's so, a pretty intense experience.
1: <laughs> so, J- Jesse, w- with regards to that, um, you know, admittedly, um, you know, on your blog and your write up, you talk about it's a male dominated, um, you know, field. Uh, and I'm sure, particularly, you know, 20, 25 years ago, even more so than currently today, there wasn't the opportunity uh what was it your outdoor experience in your in your the way you grew up that you really want to be part of that and was your driving force for it or was it a recruiter that said hey you like the outdoors you should do sear or or how did that kind of come about how did you end up you know yeah sure go to the air force at 18 but you could have been a radio operator you could have been flying an airplane or you could have done a hundred other things and but you ended up there so
2: Yeah, I think the connection I already had with the wilderness, with being outdoors when I was a kid, really spoke to me. So on the 15th day of basic training, when they showed SEER training, it was all outdoors. And that really, really appealed to me. I'd actually gone in under general mechanics, because I scored high for a female back then in being able to see in, in multiple dimensions. So look at a floor plan, and I can imagine walking through the house, which apparently is not common for most females. So they put me in mechanics, Air Force needs come first. So that's where I was stuck initially. And I'm like, well, at least I'll work with my hands. I don't, I just don't want to be stuck with a desk job, Ugh, anything but that. So I ended up going in for mechanics and then saw SEER training. I'm like, whoa, this is working with my hands and it's being outdoors. And I already feel this really strong safety, like the wilderness is where I want to be. And they're going to teach me how to survive in any environment around the world And keep myself safe, like to be able to evade and cool, right? It was right up my alley. It fit me to a T. The only thing that didn't or the part that didn't register was I was going to be a teacher. (laughs) that was the part that I wasn't registering. And at the time I was like, I walked pigeon toed. I kept my head down. I mean, I'd go to dances and I love to dance. So I'd, I'd get out of my shell a little bit when I was dancing. And I was probably more gregarious than I remember, but I really felt like this really shy, quiet girl that had, I spoke in a whisper. Like they would come up to me at basic trainer at SEER and be like, use your instructor voice. And I'd look at them, you yes, Sergeant, you know. It so it, they had their work cut out for them in that aspect. And by the t- time I came out of the training, I'm like, get out of my w- way. I was kind of obnoxious, actually. So I went from one extreme to the other. And hopefully now that I'm coming up on 50, I'm kind of fine in the middle road.
1: <laughs> That's awesome. So So you, you go through basic training and then you, you end up over on the seer side of things. And, and so is it, um, what kind of course is it? Was it like kind of a few weeks or was it months or, you know, obviously there was some degree of, uh, comprehensiveness, but how long did that, that training program go for Jesse?
2: The training for Sierra is about six months of strict training. That's all you're doing with your group. And then it's another six months of on-the-job training, OJT. So once you're done with your six months of training, which is about a 50% washout rate or so, or that's where they kind of call the herd. And if you make it through that, then you're assigned to a flight. And so there's four flights and I was in Charlie flight. And once you're assigned to your flight, you're assigned to a squad and then a trainer in that flight or in that squad. So um, with your trainer, then you get the first group or um, collection basically of students that are coming through at, your, at that particular time. And you have, we called them elements back then. I don't know if they still do. And you'd be with your trainer working with that particular element, which could be anywhere from like three to 10 students basically. And so the first class that you get, I, as a new instructor, a newbie, um, is going to maybe teach 10% of the classes. And I've been practice teaching those, those particular lessons with my trainer. So my trainer is going to teach most of the class. I get to teach a little bit. He's, he's going to give me feedback on what I did, how I did. Um, and then if I did well, then maybe the next, a month later, when we have a new gr- crew come through, I'm going to teach maybe 30% of the lessons. And I've been practice teaching those. Right. And so we keep go- doing that progression for the next approximately six months, and then you finally hopefully make full instructor and get your hit right, which is usually they call it hazing. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't wasn't quite as bad in in the nineties. I went through a ninety um, class ninety one hundred two, but prior to that, like if you got in the seventies, like seventy one hundred two or you know whatever, um, those their hazing was a bit rougher than ours. So it's I think it's slowly been getting a little nicer. <laughs> <laughs> but it was still intense and fun.
1: Cool. So talk us through a little bit like on the course. So not so much, I guess, on the instructor end, but, you know, a typical candidate. Do you guys go out and do some survival stuff where you, you go out on a week deployment and, and go through the process there? Or what's involved in the actual course? And and ha- like, obviously, it's incredibly intense, but g- give us a, a perspective on, on wh- how bad it is.
2: <laughs> Depends on what time of year you come through as well. For us, for those of us who are going through the training to become an instructor, we go through every environment. So they would first do us, we'd, we'd call it the blue bedroom back then because you'd like be so tired from all the other stuff. You'd be falling asleep while we're trying to do the academics portion, but we're going to do rainforest. So we'd go in and, and study up on rainforests and how to take care of five basic needs in a rainforest. And then they're going to take us out to a rainforest and we're going to be out there for a week doing our thing. And then we're going to go to coastal. So we're going to go out on the coast. We're going to be out on the ocean on a 20 man raft and individual rafts and all kinds of, right. And we're going to be digging for clams and eating seaweed. And so we'd go through each of the major biomes. uh, And so that's how we would work through the instructor training. And then when we teach the class, it's trying to condense basically all this information into a a small, very small chunk of time, because we're taking six months of training. And usually the course where we would have the students would only be about a week, week and a half, And so there's a lot of information. So we'd have an exhibits lab so that if they came through in the winter, let's say, they could at least see what it would look like in a desert and what a desert shelter, how that would differ from an Arctic shelter, right, or a jungle shelter, and be able to see those. But they're only going to experience whatever time of year they come through. So we would teach them five basic needs, how to find sustenance, right? So food and water. What are the different sources and different biomes where you can get those things? Where, how are you going to make a fire? Great. So there's basics on firecraft but that changes based on where you're at again, right? If I'm in the Arctic, I don't have any wood. I got seal blubber. Great, mm-hmm. right? Or I'm on the tundra and there are no trees. All I've got is grass. Okay, so how can you work with that grass and braid it into logs so you have something that's going to burn longer or finding animal dung, right? So firecraft is going to change. Um, and that's part of personal protection. So f- there's basically those five basic needs are sustenance, personal protection, but personal protection includes three things, clothing and shelter, and any equipment you've got, right, or shelters, your second one. And then third is fire. And all those are protect yourself mostly thermally from the environment. And then you have health, right, everything from mental, emotional health to basic hygiene to first aid types of things. Then you have travel techniques. How do you get from point A to point B safely? When should you travel? When should you not? Those types of things. Uh, and the last one, which uh, it's really not last, it's really the most important, is signaling and recovery. Mm-hmm. How do you get yourself out of the situation, Right. So we look at those five basic needs in all environments, basically, and then change all those. And then you got to take it another step further because we'd usually do that non-tactical, non-combat terms. So now taking all that information, okay, so now how do you meet fire in the tundra, let's say, while you're trying to not get caught? So now you're taking all those basic concepts and moving them to a tactical situation. Mm now i think they don't do as much with the non-t- non-combat non non-tactical it's basically just teaching you tactical which in a way makes sense if you can do it in tactical situations mm-hmm. it should be able to modify pretty easily to be like oh i don't have to hide right <laughs> and be able yeah. to do it non-combat
0: yeah i remember uh when we were doing the little dumbed down version for the kids uh eating the earthworms and they were challenging us you can't do it i got Great pictures. Um, <laughs> the, the signal fires the multi level, yep. and uh, one of the ones that stuck with me is there's no seg no segmented berries anywhere in the world that are poisonous that they found. That one still right. sticks with me, and I've I've taught my my nine year old daughter that, and she knows that, and she'll go that one's safe, isn't it? Yes, it is. So there you go. yeah, little things like that that you don't think stick thirty some odd years later did.
2: Yeah. And some of that's designed into the program, that intensity level, Mm -hmm. by having the intense experience and people freaking out a little bit while they're out there as students, it really helps to cement the information in a lot Mm -hmm. better.
0: Yeah, definitely did. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Very, very cool. I'm hoping to jump into each of these uh, areas after the five areas and, and especially the health one and the mental health one and the freaking out because as sheep hunters, I've been there. I've been in uncomfortable situations in the wilderness going, I don't really like this. And, and just, you know, maintaining that mental, you know, capacity to, to not lose your mind, you know, in, in that environment is, is such an important part of it. Probably one of the most important parts, but we'll chat on that in a bit. Um, so Jesse, so you, you were in the, um, you were training till 94, I believe it was, you left the air force. And then, uh, where did you go from there? What, what, uh, what did that look like next for you?
2: Yeah. So like a lot of military folk, you meet someone in basic training or, you know, at your duty station. So I fell in love and, uh, he was sent over to Italy. And so I, we got married about a a year before I got out and he was, when he was sent over, And I joined them in Italy for a couple of years and started working at MWR and going to college, taking some more college courses. Um, So Morale, Welfare, and Recreation is MWR. So it's basically their version of like, uh, it's just outdoor recreation, right, for military members. Um, But it was in Germany and Italy, which was fun. And so I did a little bit with there and and just working on school. And I started doing ropes course and challenge courses as well, which was um, interesting and, and kind of fun because it has a completely different purpose, right? In a way of SEER or survival skills. It was it was more to be fun and look at group dynamics, how people get along and how they can accomplish things and use each other's teamwork. And like, yeah, you may be maybe a kid who thinks they're overweight and not real smart, but actually you're smarter than you think. And you can help lift people up over this wall because you're a good sturdy base, right? Or you're the the little shy, quiet, kid in the corner who hardly ever gets any any communication with anyone. But, hey, what do you know? You're light, so you can go over the wall first, you know, and you're the first one. Oh, great. So it was really working with empowering people and kind of the opposite of what we would do at Sears school, which is really try to break people down to show them how strong they are. In this case, it was more like just start building them up because the poor kids, you know, so often felt like they were broken down already. Um, So it was very dynamic. And at the same time, I was getting a bachelor's in educational psych. So uh, they say those of us who have childhood trauma or trauma in general, um, we tend to be drawn towards psychology. And that was definitely me. So I did that for a couple of years, Um, ended up back in the States, ended up getting divorced, uh, ended up working at a challenge ropes course there, finishing my degree in um, educational psych. Uh, Let's see, where did I go from there? I ended up down in the Southwest and got into wilderness therapy, which was awesome. Um, So that's where I really finally got my therapy was (laughs) by working in the career field um, and helping other people through their trauma. It was awesome. Excellent career field.
1: So how long was that? Was that a long, um, were you doing that a long time, Jesse, or did you transition right away um, to something new there? What? And the, my question for you is, when did you go to Tanzania and cr- cross the Serengeti?
2: I, <laughs> I want to have that
1: story too. So, uh, but but I guess, where did you go from there in the interest of the, the storyline first?
2: So. Sure. Yeah. I spent a long time working off and on in wilderness therapy, about 11, 11 years or so um, for a couple different companies. And yeah, it was extremely powerful. I feel like the me before wilderness therapy and the me after were are completely different people. Uh, it was so transitional and so powerful for me. Um, and just incredible to be able to be part of so many other people's journey as well and helping them get from point A to point B, B being hopefully where they want to be or at least get closer to that stage. So it was incredible. Um But it's also has a a very high burnout rate. It's, it's intense, very intense emotional work, working in wilderness therapy. And it is physical as well, especially one of the companies I worked at, you're going in and out of canyons, you're hiking almost every day with, you know, 60, 70 pound packs and being responsible for keeping a group of people safe. Some of the first program I worked was addiction based. So the students were really, um, could be extreme sometimes and they'd want to run off and so that was it was just very dynamic and very interesting and yeah transformative so while I was working there um, a friend of mine yeah came up with a told me just passed on this uh, casting call for migrations with National Geographic um, to go across the Serengeti and I was like sweet <laughs> that sounds awesome sign me up so yeah it was pretty cool
1: Okay. No, so we're not leaving it there. That's for sure. So I want to hear that story. First of all, so this was, this was through migrations and it was a National Geographic and they were making a show out of it, obviously, right? So um, tell us how many people started. Give us the context. I, I want to hear all about it. And I want to hear about the journey. That, that's the important part I want to hear about for sure.
2: Yeah, it was an incredible journey for sure. There were uh, 20 people starting out and it was pretty neat. I think how they did the selection process because they really tried to get a pretty wide scope of backgrounds and abilities for this for the 20 people so reggie was awesome he um he's a motivational speaker he's an incredible human and when he was like 10 he had both knee both legs amputated below the knee so he's a double amputee Um, but he's climbed mountains and won motorcycle races An incredible human um Robin, uh, she was a lawyer and then, you know, tough, tough woman and, um, ended up finding out switching over to become a fitness person. Somebody who really focuses on fitness and, uh, And then found out she had diabetes, like type one. Um, Sarah, who'd had cancer. Um, Amy, who's a big cat expert, but had only slept one night out in the woods. Uh, Dave, who's this very sweet, kind of nerdy type with glasses, who is absolutely adorable and sweet and actually a very tough guy, uh, who's an entomologist whose specialty is, is eating insects. Which is awesome. Um, so everybody just has their own story. Just really beautiful, wonderful people, and they pull us all together and say, "Okay, your mission is to try to hike across the Serengeti <laughs> and follow the p- migration path of the wild- of the wildebeest." So that's what we did, and it was fantastic. Um, in some ways, it was a bit. It was frustrating because it was it was media and it was national. Net Geo's first attempt, really, at doing a reality show. And it didn't it didn't do all that well at least not in the United States. Um, but the journey for those of us that were on it was just amazing. At that point, they weren't allowing people to hike across the Serengeti. If you went on safari in the Serengeti, you go in a vehicle, and if you get out to pee, you have people with rifles standing around you so you can go pee and get back in the vehicle as soon as possible. And you hope that an elephant doesn't stomp on the vehicle <laughs> or a rh- rhino, whatever. Um, so it was pretty intense. It was it was we were starving. Um, we're hiking. We're trying to work together under those conditions. Um, but magical at the same time. I mean, just amazing seeing so much wildlife. And we laugh and say, you know, th- those of us who are on it, we're still, we're like family now, right? It was such an intense experience that all of us, it's like we are embedded in each other's psyche for the rest of our lives. And we drank a lot of Africa. <laughs> we drank a lot of, of Tanzania um, just with muddy, waters and you know wildebeest guts and <laughs> all kinds of fun
1: so i guess it, it is a reality show so you had the support there but you know i guess what was your biggest threat was it the wildlife was it you know this the starvation i guess they weren't going to let you die probably in theory um but you know what did that look because i always that's the, the interesting part for me is the reality shows it's like well, you know how dangerous is it, and I know it, it. But this is a bit different because you're dealing with wildlife, and and uh, obviously there's some very imminent real threats there too, right? So,
2: absolutely, yeah. I mean, we did have people with rifles around. That was nice, and they make it look like you know it's it. It's not quite as reality as you'd like. But I've been on a couple other realities since reality show since, and some of them are way like. There's, there's not much reality at all versus migrations. We really, we really were starving and the animals were right there. Um, And so there were times like they would bring these tents out and for the guards basically, and they'd go in their tent with their gun to sleep. And there's some of the, like the initially when we get out there, it's like, there's hyenas everywhere. The hyenas were like creepy. You could see them creeping up. Right. (laughs) And we've got fire and clods of, uh, of hard mud. Like, there aren't even rocks, right, for us to use. And we're staying up in two-person shifts. Like, the whole trip, we did two-person rotations throughout the night, every single night, and keeping the fire burning to keep things at bay. Because it's like, we're like, okay. So basically, yeah, we're on our own. Because by the time, if someone gets snagged, a hyena grabs you by the foot and drags you out 30 feet, the rest of them have you disemboweled, (laughs) Before that guard's coming out of the tent to start shooting, you know, so we really did feel like, okay, yeah, we're we're kind of on our own here. Like they'll be there if we really need to. Like there's a, a part I remember that r- the river was really swollen and just chocolate, you know, look like chocolate milk, and we got to get water, and we've got these huge metal jerry cans. And I'm literally in an alligator, uh, uh, you know, a crocodile slide, <laughs> and I'm I've tied myself off to a tree behind me because it's so steep and slick. And I've tied open the the opening of this big metal jerry can and tied a rope to it. And I'm like standing like 15 feet back and like hurling this thing out into the water to collect the water and then dragging it back up. And it's like the the mouth is open, right? So it's getting mud and stuff in there, but we're like, we don't care. We're not getting any closer that, to that water. Like, this is as close as I'm going to get. And you pull it up and like, mud and no, all. That's what I mean. Like, we drank a lot of mud. Uh, but it was just, yeah, there were times when we're crossing rivers and there's hippos right there. And it's like, same thing. Like, really? Is is the rifle really going to help even if they do manage to? Because there's a herd of hippos there. Like, they don't do well when you invade their territory. So it was definitely... Um, yeah, it was scary at times and and did feel very real.
1: Very cool. How long was the journey? How long did it take you guys to cross?
2: We spent 35 days in transit.
1: Okay, yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I'm kind of interested about the group dynamics there. So you had 20 people. Um, you've got, you know, a diabetic. You've got a cancer survivor. You've got a double amputee. Um, how how did it come when it came to leadership? So you got 20 people. Um, and to me, like the the dynamics of leadership and just gr- like working together as a group and, you know, that that in itself is just daunting. So how did that, was it, did there emerge kind of like a leader, like somebody that everyone kind of looked to or was it sort of shared leadership? What did, what was the group dynamics like with, in a situation like that, Jesse?
2: It was interesting because we had some of the military members and yeah, I'm former military, but I tend to be pretty egalitarian and I really like, I like the type of leadership that says, Hey, everybody throw your ideas together and then we're going to come to a consensus as much as possible. I prefer that type of leadership. Um, But we did have people that wanted to create like, no, we need the hard firm leader. And uh, at at one point when we sat down, (coughs) somebody was putting someone forward and um, we weren't as a group really happy with that. And (coughs) so I think just because everybody knew that that's kind of who I am, we, we said I was the leader. Me fully understanding, no. <laughs> there is no leader here. Uh, for the most part, I feel like we just helped each other. Like if somebody needed support that, you know, um, there are times when somebody's having trouble hiking and so everybody takes some of their gear so they don't have to carry as much. Um, yeah it I think for the most part it worked out really egalitarian, and people really just supported each other and that was awesome. Um, and there was there were some conflicts at times, but I feel like we we ended up working through it and um yeah, it just it happens you know that's that's life. I think the personal interpersonal dynamics I think can be the most challenging thing about life in general, our relationships, right And it's funny because it's the one thing we don't seem to get much formal education on. <laughs>
1: Well said. And, you know, that was kind of going to be my next question was, would you say that crossing the the Serengeti, the most challenging part was, you know, the adversity you were facing uh, physically in the environment? Or was it internally with the group and just the, the group dynamic and trying to get 20 people that have been thrown together successfully across the the Serengeti?
2: Boy, that's a hard one. It was a bit of both. Um, There were definitely times when I was really, really frustrated with group dynamics. Uh, Especially, I got dehydrated at one point. I I tell people when I start to get dehydrated, the first thing to go is my attitude. (laughs) You talk, I'm a Gemini, right? So I'm usually happy, like I'm smiling. Life is good. Let's keep pushing. The worse things get, the more I'm laughing and thinking it's fun but don't piss me off. <laughs> if, if I go the other way, like I, I definitely could have gone to sniper school <laughs> and done the opposite. So um, yeah, there were times when I was definitely just pissed off and just angry with everyone. And uh, thankfully they would <clears throat> forgive me later and we could move on. <laughs>
0: and
2: do it. But um, for the most part, you know, I was really just really impressed with people. Like I would see some of these folks, I felt like those of us who are prior military or who had just been through stuff like Manu, you know, she grew up in Australia in the outback and um, she would tell this story that I still think is hilarious, even though it's unbelievably gross. (laughs) They just, she and her brothers like found a bloated crocodile carcass or something. And so they're taking turns jumping on it to see which one's going to pop the carcass and get covered (laughs) in like disgusting gooey guts. And uh, so she just, she just has an interesting background. I love Manu. And so those of us who have done that kind of stuff before, it's like, okay, just make yourself as comfortable as you can, and then there's a point you're just not going to be comfortable, and you just got to keep pushing. And so it's like, okay, for those of us that were like that, I'm like, yeah, 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 whatever. But the people who'd like never camped before, who'd never pumped a pack before, who'd never drunk like water that looks like chocolate milk and smells disgusting – i was just so impressed and blown away by them so i think the few times when i was brought to tears it was more out of just awe and gratitude for the strength i was seeing in these people that had never done anything like this before so it's to me i love that spiritual journey that mm-hmm. journey for humans that human like hero thing of like yes just not knowing what's in you until you actually push and just watching that blossom gives me goosebumps i just it's beautiful to be able to witness that.
1: Mm-hmm. Very cool. Um, so, can we segue back to wilderness therapy? So, let's just talk a little bit about that. Obviously, that really enriched your life. Um, you talked about, you know, the addiction. Um, I guess clients or or, or customers or, or um, candidates in your in your course um, was. What else did you deal with? Uh, was it was there other um, groups that you dealt with when you did your wilderness therapy and, and maybe just touch a little bit on that because I'm a little bit familiar with wilderness therapy, but um, I'm, you know, I've got some friends of mine that are, you know, involved with veterans and stuff like that. So I I think that that is the wilderness therapy realm, but I don't know enough about it. So can you just touch a little bit on that
2: for us, Jesse? Sure. The, the wilderness can be such a healing place. It's, there's no judgment right and and i'm just going to say it again there's no judgment we live in a society where we're trying i think collectively to become less and less judgmental but it's it's hard it's part of our human nature is i like this and i don't like that or i'm familiar with this and i'm not familiar with that and that's strange and this is familiar and it's very difficult for us to get beyond that i think and that conditioning the wilderness doesn't care it just doesn't care the, the storm is coming. The cold is here. It's going to get nighttime. It's going to be day. There's water. There's not. <clears throat> so with those kinds of concepts, it's like, you can drop all the mask. You can drop all the past. You can be in the here and now. The past doesn't really matter. I can focus on what I need to focus on at the moment I need shelter. I need water. And so it it's a great, in a way, distractor from all of our memories and our story of who we are and where we came from and how we're going to be looked at, and blah, 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 all that stuff. It just can melt away. So that's a beautiful environment for growth and for change and to start over, basically, and see who we are fundamentally in our essence. So I love the wilderness for that. And its we're finding we can utilize that, let it heal us basically in many different ways. So let's say, you know, people, there's, luckily there's an awareness more growing about mental illness and mental challenges that all of us face, right? Because there's a, we all have aspects of bipolar and borderline personality disorder, and we all have, just all kinds of issues that we're born with. <clears throat> or I shouldn't say born with that we evolve basically through our life. And some of them are biological, whatever, but the wilderness can help us deal with those. And so whether it's PTSD, whether it's borderline, whether it's um, suicidal ideation and cutting, um, whether it's social phobias, whatever the problem is, the wilderness just has a way of help helping bring us back to center you know there's a quiet there's a peace there's not all the distractions i i hopefully learn to see more what's in myself and shed those layers and remember that we're all children <laughs> we're all that child that we came into the world as we've just had all these layers and all these expectations and things put on us so the wilderness is a place to just get rid of that and so the people that work in that environment and get to grow and evolve. And I was so jealous actually <laughs> of a lot of my clients that would come through, you know, in their teens and 20s and and think, wow, I mean, I was going through SEER training and that was my journey. But the therapy and the awareness I got of who I am and uh, where I want to be and how to interrelate with other people, that grew so much as a result of just working in wilderness therapy. And I didn't get there till my late 30s, right? So I was jealous. I'm like, oh, that's like a couple decades, man. If I'd known half of this stuff (laughs) like 20 years ago, how different would my life be? And yeah, so it's just, to me, it's incredible. It's absolutely amazing um, to help anybody. I wish we could get all the, uh, honestly, if we get all the world's politicians, all of them, (laughs) To do like two months of wilderness therapy as a criteria for getting into office, I think it would change the world incredibly.
1: And I I think we'll leave a few of them out there too, Jesse. while we're at it, right?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, the wilderness will take care of them. (laughs) There's there's some that don't make it. That's on them at that point. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah.
1: Well, well, said. And you know, I, a lot of our listeners are, are sheep hunters, and and that's that's the reset for us. And you know, you've lived that life. You've you know, you've embraced it, and and you know, that's your thing. You do that full time. Um, and I'm envious because you know, I'm at my best when I'm out there. It just for me, it's that reset. So I can I can relate in some capacity, not to the extent that you're experiencing it with your everyday job, especially in the wilderness therapy realm, but even you know through your seer as well so yeah very envious and I can certainly relate and I'd love to hear the passion in your voice about it you can obviously it's something close to home with you right
2: definitely yeah it was a huge part of my growth so I recommend it for everyone
1: very cool so now you from there um I guess there was some steps in between but modern day you're uh you're running a seer training program uh, out of Colorado um do you want to touch on that. I know you're transitioning now too. We've talked about that before the show and I'm not sure how much you can go into that. So I won't, I won't ask you if you want to talk about it. Great. But let's talk a little bit about uh, the SEER training program in Colorado and what you guys do there. And, and again, you know, pitch the course as well. We'd love to hear what you guys do. Cause I think some of our listeners would be interested in what you guys do.
2: Mm, thanks. Yeah. So actually this harks back to migrations. One of the people I met on that trip is Dan Baird, who runs the California survival school. So about a year after we'd gotten back off that track, um, Dan called me up and he's like, hey, you want to start a survival school? And I said, hell no. He's like, (laughs) huh? He's like, man, out on the trip, you seem to really enjoy teaching. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I love teaching. I have no interest in running a business, right? None. You get me in front of a computer and start making me type away on a keyboard? Shoot me now. Like I have no interest. I hate working on the computer. I call myself technologically impaired. He's like, no, no, no. You could be a satellite school off of my school. He runs the California survival school. I was like, oh, okay. So so what does that mean exactly? And he's like, well, pretty much I take care of all the bureaucratic stuff and you pretty much teach. And I'm like, oh, okay, that sounds great. (laughs) That sounds fine. And I'd been I'd been getting burned down a wilderness therapy. It was just, it's wonderful work, but it just it's very draining. And I was ready to go have fun in the wilderness again, right? And I love to teach. So we start up SEER training. And so I'm the head instructor. And I've been doing that for about, oh four four or five years now. And I focus mostly on the survival and the evasion part. Um, we I don't do much in the resistance or escape at our school. Um, we leave that to other schools that are more set up for that kind of thing. You really need an indoor facility, Um, and you need trained interrogators and all of that. And that's it's not the fun part, right? So I wanted to stick with more of the fun part. And there's so much value in just the basic survival skills. And for me, I'm like, you don't need to resist or escape if you evaded successfully, right? <laughs> if you didn't get caught in the first place. So those are the the ones that I tend to focus on. And I realized pretty quickly when I started it um, and started teaching civilians that I really wanted to work with women it's so rare. There are so few female SEER instructors and female survival instructors in general. And there are so many women in the world that really want and in many ways need these skills. And when I say these skills, I don't just mean the hard skills of how to make a fire and how to put a shelter and tie knots and sharpen knives and so on and so forth. I mean the empowerment that comes with um, it's the soft skills, the hardness, the the ability to simply stand firm and to make a decision and go with it. And so many women aren't really taught to do that. And we kind of struggle and figure it out. But there's still, unfortunately, no offense to you guys, I, ha- I love my boyfriend, uh, but there's still an awful lot of man speak out there. And there's a lot of tromping on women's voices. Mm-hmm. So of all the demographics, right, the marginalized demographics, women are probably the largest one. It doesn't matter what country you come from, what your belief system is, women still are often tucked underneath, slid underneath the men. And so we don't we don't get a voice a lot of the time. So I love the dynamic when I'm working with women and teaching women, and for them to have a female instructor, and just the dynamic is different and it's wonderful and it's beautiful. And I started a meetup group up in Boulder called Survival Sisters and it's just wonderful. I love that vibe. So I fairly quickly told Dan, I'm like, hey, I know we started this for all demographics, but I'd really like to just focus on women. Um, and Dan wasn't into it then. I think he wanted me because of the military background and his school is more primitive living and, and doesn't come from that military perspective. So he didn't really care whether it was male or female. It was just that I'd like to teach, hopefully a decent teacher, and that I had the military background. I'm like, you know, that's not really where I want to go. Um, So he's been basically my mentor. He's been teaching me for the last, oh, four or five years. And I've been refining my technique and and teaching civilians and playing with that. But I'm ready to branch out now. So I'm starting Owl Skills. Actually, February 1st is when we hope to launch the website. And Owls is Outdoorsy Women Learning Survival Skills. So that's where we're headed. And I'm very excited for that. Congratulations.
1: (laughs) That's awesome. Wow. Thank you. I oh, finally
2: figured out I could hire other people to do the stuff I hate, so. <laughs> <laughs>
1: wow, very cool. So uh, February 1st is the website launch or the business launch or both, all of it?
2: All of it, yeah. That's when you'll be able to get on the website and register for classes. And most of them will be here in Colorado in the Boulder, Denver area, but uh, I'll probably be doing some more teaching up in Vermont and obviously doing private classes, like working on one in Amarillo, Texas right now. And so I, I like to- take off and go teach wherever people live. I think that's the most informative for them, the best for them. And it's a lot more fun for me. I don't I don't like to do the same thing over and over again if I can help it. So uh, it's nice for me to get private groups that are like, hey, we'll fly you out to wherever and you know you can come play. And this is the skills we want to learn. So it's fun.
1: I've got two words for you. British Columbia What's that? I got Woo-hoo! two words. British Columbia. Come Sounds to Canada. Good. Yeah you gotta you gotta put <laughs> us on your uh, your tour list. So
2: you bet. Sounds good.
1: Yeah. Well, congratulations. That's really exciting. I I know some correspondence came through about owl, and I didn't. I didn't get it. So this is really exciting. And yeah, you're. I can. You're- for our guests, you're just beaming with a huge smile right now. So very <laughs> exciting. So let's talk a little bit more about, um, you know, how is this going to be different? Like, you know, um, it, I guess there's going to be a lot more on empowerment. There's going to be obviously the the outdoor skills, but it'll be about empowerment and about confidence building and and showing people what they can do, I guess, hey. Eh?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, I feel like my fundamental purpose or role in life, and I guess in a general Level is, I, I, I think of myself, I guess, as a healer and hopefully, I guess, kind of a subversive healer if there is such a thing. It is so empowering uh, to learn those physical hard skills and to know that you can be in adverse situations like the wilderness when things are just going wrong, which happens from time to time, and be able to step up and take care of yourself. That's a wonderful feeling, and that tends to not just stop at the edge of the wilderness, right? It carries on back into civilization and with our quote-unquote regular jobs and hopefully with our interpersonal relationships. So I really just want to help people on two basic levels. One, for their own growth and sanity. (laughs) And second is to help the wilderness. And I think when I was a kid, I thought that that was my fundamental mission was to protect the wilderness, I I would see um, if anybody remembers the old movie Sheena, Queen of the Jungle, <laughs> which is probably a grade D movie. <laughs> um, but it was I wanted to be that kid so bad, um, living out in the jungle and doing all those things. And I just wanted to protect the wilderness. And if anybody hurt any kind of an animal at all, I was jumping in front of them and. Turned into this little ball of rage, you know, to protect um, things that couldn't protect themselves. You know, the poor tree or the bush or the the cat or the bird or the snake or whatever it was. And what I've realized, I think, as I've gotten older, is that people won't protect something they don't have a connection with. Right. So, by teaching people that the wilderness isn't the scary place, it isn't the place to. You know, oh my god, you go out there, you're gonna die of exposure and the dig a bear and wolves and blah, right? mm-hmm. People just panic and they freak out. It's like if I can mute that and say, yo, people have been living out there in the in the wilderness for eons, it's okay. Like you can you got you got this, you can do this, and help them feel safer when they go mm-hmm. out running or hiking or biking or snowmobiling and hunting and everything else. Like if you can go out there and feel safe and understand that this is a place to reset and connect and it's okay. Then we're more likely to protect it. That's right. right. If we don't have that connection, we don't see value. Therefore we vote on a tax bill that's going to annihilate it. So let's protect it. So I, I feel like I have a couple of missions going here. Um, and then I, I, you know, to my horror, I, I really, with my childhood, I thought humans, ugh. You run the other way. Like, I can't trust humans. I don't understand mm-hmm. them. They're confusing, crazy creatures that do one thing in private, another thing in public. And, ah! and so that wasn't safe again. Um, but so to my horror, right, as I got older and I started teaching and actually learning to be more human myself and that I didn't have to be perfect and connecting with people, I'm like, oh actually am a human and I really like other humans (laughs) and I actually do want to help them out and help them feel connected and safe and good. And by doing that, I can also help the wilderness. So I see that basically as my mission in life now.
0: Yeah, definitely key to, to learn and respect mother nature, Mm -hmm. right? Cause, uh, she's the most beautiful thing in the world, but she can also turn your lights out in one second.
2: Yep. Put a whooping on you yep. pretty quick. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so let's transition there a little bit, if you don't mind, Jesse, and let's talk a little bit about survival for our listeners. So um, n- not going to get a survival course in here in five minutes, but, you know, I, I you know, you talked about the five areas that you key on as, um, for survival training, signaling, health, travel techniques, sustenance and personal protection. So can we can we hit the health aspect of it and let's talk about the mental health. Cause we've talked a little, we had Laura there on here. We talked about, you know uh, you know, building fires and the basics and uh, kind of stuff. And I, you know, that it was great. It was a short thing and I learned a lot from there, but um, you know, we don't talk enough about the mental health side of things and, and staying sane in the field. And honestly, there's been times where I've been pretty darn scared out there. Um, So, you know, can you give us a little bit of, you know, your, your five minute pitch on, how to to stay uh, real and and not lose it in the wilderness. And I think that's a big part of it is just keeping your head on straight. Right.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. I'll often just tell myself um, knowing stories helps a lot. If you read stories of what people have done correctly and really what people have done wrong, that's where we learn best. And so if you read a lot of stories of hunters who've managed to survive or even more the ones who didn't where they went out and they reclaimed a body afterwards lessons from that can really be a good you can use it to either instill fear or it can be use it as a cautionary tale right so if i'm in a a sketchy situation and my adrenaline is going up and i'm starting to freak out I'm telling myself freak out die freak out die so use your skills breathe right? Sit your butt on the ground. Don't let your eyes dart around like you're a a prey animal about to get caught. Focus on one thing with your eyes. Look at it. What's the texture? What's the color? Let your shoulders relax. Ground in. Feel. You can literally get down and touch the ground or even lay on the ground for a few minutes. Breathing in a slow, making your exhales longer than your inhales. If I'm going... (laughs) right? And I'm freaking out and I'm looking around all over. So all those body behaviors, if we can control the body, that's going to change our mental state. So if I can't change my mental state, if my thoughts are just going a mile a minute and I can't seem to control that, control my body. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to relax. I'm going to breathe intentionally. I'm going to touch the ground. I'm going to make my eyes focus and that will calm me. And most people who end up freaking out and not controlling it, they end up going. Most of us end up doing the flight, right? Freeze, flight, or flight. And most people, especially us alpha types, who are used to taking care of ourselves, getting ourselves out of the situation, and having kind of that ego, like I know I've got it, right? Like, oh God, you know, if I end up in trouble out here, somebody has to come rescue me. Seriously, right? That can't happen. Um, So all kinds of things can go (laughs) and factor into this. This heightened emotional state. And if that takes control and we just go, I just got to get there. I just got to go. That's when most people die. When we're traveling, we're using way more calories, way more water, way more energy, and we're much more likely to get injured, right? So being able to control that impulse and remembering that most people who move, who try to travel when they find themselves in a crisis situation, die. If I keep that in my mind and say, okay, that's right. I'm trying to just run right now and that's probably not going to end well. I need Mm. to sit down. I need to breathe. I need to get control of the situation. And that is crucial. Most people I think who end up really getting themselves in big trouble out there, it's because they panic and they don't recognize it soon enough and do the steps they need to do to calm down.
1: Mm. Interesting. So I guess the the key takeaway there is if you, if you are in a situation, you're better off. If you think there's a chance of rescue, say where you are, hunker in, start worrying about survival, your mental health and not be making a plan to. And then at some point, maybe you do have to travel because you're not going to be rescued. People don't know where you are type thing.
2: Yeah. Every situation is different. I think that's what's so fascinating about survival skills in general is every situation is different. You don't know what it's going to be. If you did, obviously, you wouldn't have ended up in the situation to begin with. So, being able to calm and just why move if you don't know if there's a cliff up ahead or if the weather's really bad. Um, and so, I think that the two things, the main thing that I tell people is be still and be big. For the most part, that's going to be your your motto: be still, stop moving, and be big. Make sure people know where you are. Do everything you can to make a signal, to let people know. There are three basic types of signals, pyrotechnic, so anything having to do with fire or smoke, and they're man-made, right, flares and things like that, or you can literally make a fire. And with a fire, you can create black smoke or white smoke. If I want black smoke, I'm going to try to use petroleum products or pitch wood or um, there are certain resins and things out in the field that can create a black smoke that'll go against a white background. If you're a hunter and you're out and it's just started snowing, you do white smoke, it's not likely to, to stick out. That's just going to blend in. So knowing your pyrotechnic ins and outs and the different parts there. Then there's ground to air signals. So things these are things like signal mirrors, which are awesome, can be used with the sun or the moon, but you got to know how to do it, especially an improvised method. Um, And then there's strip signals, right? Those are other types of ground air signals. So strip signals, signal mirrors, um, lasers, which are okay, but they don't tend to go that far. Uh, So those are types of ground air signals. And then we have electronic, of course, which it's actually funny to me how many people forget about electronics. Like we almost always have a cell phone on us, right? But there was like a plane crash with a family where they crashed the plane. They're all conscious the parents are injured the teenage daughters in the back she's okay and they've been there for hours right in like the Sierra Nevadas or something and this little plane crashed in the in march and it's cold and they he's like drained fuel from the the wing trying to light a fire and lit himself on fire um he's walked around with broken bones trying to get themselves protected the the beacon wasn't working so that was out. So they didn't think of anything else. So like midnight, they're huddled in their plane, all like trying to stay warm, right? And the phone rings.
1: <laughs> oh, no. Seriously?
2: Seriously.
1: I thought use it, like use the flashlight to try it out. Like, oh my goodness. Oh, oh. <laughs> the
2: phone rings. So oh. they're like, so the daughter like jumps, you know, so at the bottom, you know, the plane's not upright. It's like all this funky angle. She's driving down there and comes up with all three of their cell phones right
0: oh my goodness and
2: it was like their other daughter that they had been trying to get to trying to call them <laughs> like wow. and now of course it's been sitting in the cold bottom of the plane so the batteries are almost dead but they managed to like call nine one one and get, get the helicopters out there and then yes use the flash from the phone right like they're taking a photo to attract the helicopter's attention but it was like eight hours wow. they never even thought about the the phone. <laughs> right?
1: Wow. That's that's and incredible. This
2: is classic. <laughs>
1: <laughs> wow. Shocking. Wow. Wow, that's that is that's a good one.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so electronic, pyrotechnic, ground air, make yourself be seen. Help search and rescue get to you. And if nothing else, if the weather's bad, things are gross, it's nasty out, just stay still. Take care of your basic needs, stay in one place. And if you, if it clears up and things get better and you can travel later, great, but don't think you have to get somewhere right now, right?
0: Yeah. I remember they gave us little wallet sized little plastic cards that had little ways of putting signals on the ground. And in there, there was uh, a mirror that had a hole in it and you could use that to aim at anybody. Yeah.
2: Absolutely. Lots of
0: memories back.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Good. I can refresh you. Glad, glad I can help you with that.
1: So Jesse, on the, uh, on the water side of things, so you guys had this when you were in the Serengeti, um, how, what, do, how do you manage the, so if you get really dirty water, do you guys filter it with uh, clothing or something like that to try? Cause I, actually, I was hunting this fall, this past fall, and it was a glacial runoff and the silt was so intense. You, you get the water and then you look at it and there literally be a, probably a quarter of an inch of of silt in the bottom and it was disgusting. So, you know, we, we managed to find a better water source, but you know, in a situation where you don't have an alternative, do you just strain it with clothing as like a very fine clothing or what do you do? What's your best bet there?
2: You can definitely try that. Um, it's, I would usually just go through a, a- a handkerchief is what I often do. I'll have one handkerchief and that's its designated use is to basically filter. Um, and that's usually all I do for a filter, but then obviously you want to disinfect somehow. And to keep in mind that it depends on where you're getting the water from. Um, like you can, a lot of that sediment's not going to hurt you to drink depending on where you are and you can let it settle and then siphon off if you want to as well. Um, but you know, if it if it looks like chocolate milk, that's, that's probably not going to hurt you. It's a little extra clay, a little extra silt. Um, the main thing is to make sure it's drinkable, right? And that means that there's literally nothing in it either by boiling um, or by a really intense filtration system, which unfortunately, when you've got that much sediment, if you try to use the regular filters that will figu- uh, filter down to microns that um, you're probably not going to even, I mean, viruses can still sometimes get through depending on it, but um We don't have viruses in that many places, but those types of filters will often clog up very quickly with that much sediment. And so there becomes a point where it's like, is it really worthwhile to even use the filter or do I just boil the water or put in enough of the disinfectant to make it drinkable and drink the sediment anyway, who cares, right? Right. Um, So keeping that in mind, the only time when the sediment can be really bad is if it's got heavy metals or a lot of toxins and things like that in the water. So if you're in a place where you're worried about mining operations or there's those types of contaminants, in that situation, filtration is the only way to get rid of those, right? Mm -hmm. Because if I just add in iodine or some kind of bleach solution or even boiling it, that doesn't do anything to heavy metals or most toxins. So you're still going to be ingesting those and getting the negative effects. So it's, we're in a tricky situation now in our wilderness, um, because it can be very hard to know exactly what's in that water that you're about to drink. And that's why I think filters are becoming so much more popular. So filters and a a cloth filter is not going to get out toxins or heavy metals, right? Mm -hmm. It'll just take out a little bit of like dead bugs and, uh, you know, live bugs and plants and a little bit of the sand and such. But um, most of that sediment's probably still going to get through. So that's where the higher quality like commercial filters, that's what they're designed for is to take out a lot of that stuff that um, isn't the best to drink. But keep in mind too, that if you have no way to filter or even disinfect the water, drink the water. There are very few circumstances where you're going to end up in a situation of dying because of whatever was in the water before you get rescued, right, or getting sick. It usually takes a week to two weeks before you even get Giardia, right, which is one of the most common bacterium basically that we worry about. Um, And that it, it takes a while for those symptoms to show up. And most people are rescued within three days, So then you can deal with the consequences of getting sick later after you're safely back in a hospital or back home. Um, But people have ended up in a lot worse shape because they refuse to drink the water because they're worried about getting sick and then end up in kidney failure or dying of dehydration, right? So.
1: Interesting. Um, I didn't know that about Jardia, that it takes that long to kick in. I kind of thought it was one of those things where we always deal with that in Northern British Columbia. There's a lot of beaver dams and that sort of stuff. So beaver scat in the water and, um, you know, we're always cognizant of it but i kind of thought it was like oh you drink it and an hour later you're you know you're yeah i didn't realize it was wow that's interesting so um good to know if the plane's coming within a week we're fine right
2: (laughs) exactly exactly uh cool usually if if you're getting sick right away it's usually something more like fecal finger or some other some other contaminants gotten in there but not usually giardia
1: Okay. Very interesting. Um, yeah, we could talk survive all day and I know we got a limited time. So, um, no, I really appreciate it. Um, but, uh, what I would like to tell, talk about before we go is how do people check out your new business, your new platform, where do they go? Um, this will come out after the first, so you guys will be live. So share where people can go and we'll, we'll share it in the, in the, um, the notes as well. So people can find you guys and, and hear about your new program.
2: Yeah. So owl skills. So, O-W-L-L-O-W-L-S skills. Owlskills.com is where you can find the new business, primarily for women. I will have some weekends where it's like family-oriented or for all demographics. Uh, and then Seer Training, I'm still going to be doing some teaching for them as well. So Sear Training S-E-R-E-Training dot us is that one for that site. So, and you can sign up to be on our newsletters. I usually put out one every three months or so that says where where we're teaching and what we're doing and different ways to connect and to get on our instagram and facebook and all that kind of stuff so come play
1: very cool jesse well appreciate everything that you do and and just really enjoy watching uh everything that you're involved in i'm really excited to see Owl's skills what it looks like and and the evolution there and we'll definitely do our part to share that so thanks for coming on the show today and uh uh, i always love having an expert on because i learned so much right i and you know, we could sit there and talk survival all day, but obviously, we got to be a little bit uh, careful with your time. So, thank you for your time today.
2: Absolutely, definitely my pleasure. It's always fun talking with with folks who are interested and out there doing good things. So, thanks for doing what you do, guys. Keep it up, and everybody stay safe out there and have a blast.
1: I love it. Awesome.
0: Thanks, Jesse. <laughs>